following program may contain potty talk. No guarantee, but it just may. It's Thursday, November 12th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Election day was a week and two days ago. Should be enough time for the winner, if a new president, to begin the process of transitioning to the most demanding job in the world. That has been denied by the current occupant of the office, maybe because his style of presidenting, not so demanding. And he's just thinking, stop being a baby, Biden. Just make it up as you go along. You invite the Clemson kids over, give them some hardies, sign an executive order, hold it up, sign a bill, give out the pens, pens, really important, probably the most important thing. Hug a flag so they know your care. What is the problem? So if nine days haven't been enough time to incubate a transition or a solution, certainly been enough time to incubate a novel coronavirus, because today it was announced that Corey Lewandowski has tested positive for the coronavirus on top of his several positive tests for douchebag. This is quite a, no, no, unfair, withdrawn. But members of Trump's inner circle all were part of an election day watch party at the White House, and so many are now positive. Mark Meadows, Brian Jack, David Bossy, Ben Carson, Lewandowski, and RNC Chief of Staff Richard Walters. I have a theory. I haven't checked it with epidemiologists, but here it goes. The coronavirus is trying to enforce the Hatch Act. The coronavirus has been following Richard Painter, Norm Eisen on Twitter, and the coronavirus felt it had to act, intermingling the presidency with politicking like that. Then again, I am not a medical professional, but then again, Ben Carson is, and he went into an unventilated indoor setting without a mask, and he got the coronavirus. I wish them well. I wish them all well. I hope they begin the healing process, and no government functionary is refusing to acknowledge that they actually acquired the coronavirus, and this refusal is not denying them the remedies that they need during their challenging journey. On the show today... I listen to an AM radio personality who sets me straight about elections and fairness. His name, Rudy Giuliani, and he likes to make weird sounds. But first, I live in a house, a fact that I am proud of, but maybe instead of pride, I should feel shame. It's a modest house. It touches its neighbors, as row houses do. It's in a part of town where the high rises actually represent newcomers who are changing the complexion of this part of town, no matter because a new book argues, and I gotta say, fairly convincingly, that the single-family home is at least partly to blame. So I talk with Diana Lind, author of Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, Happier Housing, and then I ask myself some tough questions. To most Americans, the idea of owning a house is so intrinsic to the definition of what it means to be an American that they might not even realize that it's based on a set of policy choices and not even based on a set of preferences that they or anyone they know actually made. In her new book, Brave New Home, Diana Lind talks about, well, I'll quote the subtitle, our future in smarter, simpler, happier housing. Hello, Diana. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. 
Before we, I want to talk about history and I want to talk about how we got to the place where the single family dwelling became the de facto in America. But uh, let's do a little definition of terms. So I think we all know what the single family dwelling is, house and yard, and of course the white picket fence. Uh, And we know the extreme alternative, some sort of skyscraper, but what else is in between those two things? Yeah, so there's a lot of a lot in between there. You know, there are uh, shared housing options. So I cover in the book co-living quite a bit. Um, these would be places where people uh, have their own private bedroom, but a lot of shared spaces. So maybe a shared dining room and kitchen, things like that. There are single family homes that also have a backyard cottage or some kind of other accessory dwelling unit. There's there's certainly uh, obviously lots of other kinds of multifamily housing where you have multiple apartments within uh, one structure. And there's been a lot of interest in figuring out how to create this kind of like missing middle housing that isn't just one home on its own lot, but also isn't, you know, a large apartment building. So the laws in much of America are that you can't build these other types of homes. It, it, it would be as if there were car laws that illegalized motorcycles and compact cars and maybe anything with less than a V6 or V8 engine. How did we get to that place? Right. Yeah. And I've never heard that comparison before, but that's a really good comparison. Yeah. So... Uh, As you say, there's a lot of places in the U.S. where the only type of residential zoning is single-family zoning, and that only allows one family or one household to live in that one home. So how did we get there? Um, Well, that's, that's sort of the first third of my book that looks at, you know, how we were a country of inns and taverns, of uh, boarding houses, of, you know, much more compact types of housing where you would have, you know, multiple families living within one home, um, multi-generational families as well. What happened between that period and where we are now is that, you know, first off, we became a much more crowded and racially diverse country. And um, particularly in the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, as cities became increasingly crowded, um, that became really, it became problematic. And not unlike today, where there were a lot of public health concerns, especially at that period of time, there was a lot of concern that living in crowded housing would perpetuate a lot of public health crises. So there was a lot of concern and interest in getting people out of the city to other places. And with the proliferation of things like streetcars and especially the private vehicle, you know, regular cars, uh, that really encouraged people to move out of cities into their own homes. And certainly in those kind of suburban contexts, we weren't building, you know, the tenements of the Lower East Side now on Long Island. Instead, what we were building were these um, single family homes. At the same time, there was a lot of interest in sort of this connection between what is a home. It went from being just a shelter into something that was um, much more a combination of a bunch of different ideas. You know, home became a place where you had 
you know, it conjures ideas of domesticity, tranquility, peace, happiness, and so on. And if you weren't living alone as your own family within your own home, were you really um, doing well by your children, by your family, and so on? And so it became as part of the American dream, really, to own your own home. I think a lot of people are really familiar with the period after World War II when there was just a major suburban expansion and a lot of government incentives, essentially, to own your own homes, whether it was the GI Bill that made it much more easy for people to get access to to loans, mortgages, to own their homes, or the expansion of the highways that made it easier to live outside of cities. And really from there, you know, I would just cap it off in the end of the 20th century As cities were sort of recovering from this urban exodus, a lot of cities really looked at many of the types of shared living, less expensive, um, more affordable, naturally affordable housing that was existing in cities and tried to essentially make it illegal. So um, they saw things like SROs or single room occupancy um, houses or things like boarding houses or multifamily dwellings as being less desirable for the city. And in many cases, they became zoned out by the local zoning code. Right. But let me let me also say that it is true that this sprang out of what was the progressive movement of the time. Jacob, Jacob Reese talking about um, tenement dwellings and how the other half lives. And while many people said, I don't want to be like those other half, <laughs> I don't right. want to be like the other half. Some of the people who were maybe a generation removed from the tenement saw this as, you know, doing a good thing for society. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think there's there's some truth to that. I also think that at the same time, the idea of the house, the single family home being superior is it's a construct much in the same way that we think of, you know, say like gender or race being a construct. Um, it was something that in many cases would you know, people could say was not actually superior. And I think a lot of, that's where you end up seeing a lot of this criticism of, say, the suburban lifestyle in that, you know, you can't walk to all of your amenities. You don't get to have that kind of community building um, on your neighbors. You have a privacy, but at what other expense? So I think that there was a way in which the, the sort of ability to access your right to a better neighborhood also um, gets conflated with this idea of like, what is better in the first place? That's interesting. I think it's useful too to think about it like how gender and race is a construct. Even there's one train of thought where you could very much engage that issue, but maybe there's another train of thought where you could say, all right, whether it is or it isn't, let's just let everyone uh, kind of define it for themselves and let's be tolerant of other choices. And if someone wants to uh, have a gen- different gender experience than the one I was raised in or define themselves somewhere apart from the binary, fine, go ahead, do it, live and let live. It's not like that with homes, <laughs> which gets us to the laws. You can't just say, look, for me, single family homes, those are great, but someone else wants to live in group living or an SRO or part of the tiny house movement, that's great too. That's where the law and restrictions come in. 
Yeah, totally. And I think about that all the time when I think about how restrictive a lot of property rights are that you if you felt like, you know, actually the American dream for me is to have access to rental income. And I'd like to build instead of a single family home, a fourplex on this lot. And maybe I'd live in one apartment and I'd rent three of them out. In many places, you can't actually do that. And also at the same time, there we're starting to see a lot of the um, the, the sort of collective damage of living, um, you know, each person for themselves, particularly with the environment. I mean, we're now at a point where you could make a connection between the California wildfires and people pushing further and further out into nature when, because they simply couldn't build the multifamily housing that they would like to build um, in the core of the downtowns. Um, that would have been much more fireproof. So there are kind of collective problems and challenges based out of, you know, each individual making their choices and how we've set up zoning to to relate to that. So one of your theses in the book is that there is um, something that leads to, I mean, it's right there in the subtitle, happier, happiness. Mm-hmm. And I take this seriously and I've done some research into it and looked at it. So the thesis is that our reliance and in fact uh, our the monopoly of the single family dwelling leads to greater unhappiness. So I looked up the countries that were the happiest in the world, countries like Finland and New Zealand. And yes, indeed, the amount of single family dwellings is lower. The percentage of people living in uh, multi-generational dwellings is higher. And quite crucially, the cost of housing all across, not in the UK, but all across Europe and even in Canada is, you know, half of what it is per square foot or square meter as what it is in the United States. So it all checks out. <laughs> yeah, that's good to hear that. I, you know, and I would say that happiness can be quantified in a lot of different ways. I certainly looked at issues like loneliness and the way in which uh, single family homes kind of encourage a sense of isolation and how that can be really problematic for people. I also think that to your point about multi-generational housing, that can have a lot of positive uh, health effects if it's entered into in a way where people are, you know, happier about the arrangement, not necessarily just moving in with relatives because they have no other option. Um, And I think that the idea that, you know, you're going to be happy because you have privacy and an exclusive address, that doesn't tend to check out in the same way as um, when you look at some of those kind of loose ties that people have living in a community where you're connected to, you know, you're able to see your neighbor frequently, you can rely on them, um, and you feel like you have a connection to your local businesses and so on. So, um, and there's certainly, you know, issues of walkability and just being able to be more active when you're less reliant on cars. So there's a lot of different ways in which fact happiness factors into that. So last thing I want to ask you about, um, so how, how this has worked with me interviewing authors during the pandemic is for the first, I didn't really think about doing books for the first couple months, and then we started doing books, but there wasn't enough time to acknowledge that we're living through COVID times. And in the last couple months, there's a mention of COVID in the front and a mention of COVID in the after <laughs> afterwards in a lot of these You caught books. on to something. Right. You know, I understand. I understand the deadlines with publishing, but I don't think I've read a book where 
when you wrote it, there's one mindset uh, and what's on the top of people's minds. But then when they read it, the readers will be thinking of an entirely different reality. Um, So you acknowledge COVID and you talked about COVID, but do you generally think that um, COVID will be, there'll be a vaccine, we'll get past it. And then everything that you were writing about, about the willingness to share spaces and the fact that people won't need to necessarily separate into a little plot of land of their own, that'll all stay the same as before COVID? I think that everything is going to change because of COVID. We just don't know how. I think that there's a lot of trends that I talk about in the book that actually are more relevant now than they were beforehand. So there's a whole chapter about multi-generational housing, which uh, I think I framed it as this is you know something that is increasingly popular, particularly because the country has become more diverse. And as many immigrants live multi-generationally and Um, most people outside the U.S. do, increasingly the U.S. will start to um, have more multi-generational households. Tons of families have moved in together as a result of this. Um, So I think that is one example where we're going to just see more multi-generational housing. I have a chapter on health and housing and how people are choosing housing types based off of um, you know, concerns about their health. So I give an example of like wellness communities or ways in which hospitals could potentially become housing developers. I think we're going to just see more and more of both of those things. Um, and then lastly, about whether people would be sharing spaces, people are sharing teachers right now. They're forming pods. They're figuring out how interdependent we all are on each other. And I think that is just groundbreaking for a lot of communities. And so I'm sure that there are some people who are going to say after this is over and done with, I never want to like have to deal with these other families again. I bet that there are some of them who are going to say, this was kind of awesome. Maybe, maybe they're not going to end up like all moving in together into some kind of commune, but they might be a little bit more open to the idea of living in types of spaces where there's more shared amenities. And so I think that that will just continue from this point forward. I think the the trend, of course, everyone is talking about is people living leaving cities and moving to the suburbs. Um, I think that's just a cyclical trend in part. A lot of people who are um, who were going having kids and moving to the suburbs anyways, and this just sort of accelerated that. I think by contrast, once you find that cities are more affordable because that's definitely what's going to happen. Um, You might find that people are going to um, embrace housing types that are more, you know, alternatives to the single family home in cities um, as well. So it's yet to be seen, but I actually think that a lot of these trends uh, will continue in different ways influenced by COVID going forward. Diana Lind is a writer and urban policy specialist. She is the housing fellow at the global nonprofit New Cities, which you know is a cool n- nonprofit because there is no space between new and cities. And she is author of Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, Happier Housing. Thank you, Diana. Thank you so much for having me. And now the spiel. 
WABC Radio is your 50,000-watt blowtorch of freedom. Or when local shock jock Rudy the Love Sponge hosts a Bunsen burner of they're stealing your freedom. Oh, you know the radio Rudy I'm talking about. These complete liars. These anti-American slime. Will say things like, there's no evidence of fraud. Rudy loves doing voice work. Every wacky zoo crew's got the guy who does the voices, but with Rudy, he's a one-man band. His slow-speaking, plodding character, not just the anti-American slime you heard there, also can be a guest on the Laura Ingram show, or whatever the hell her name is. Not the way Laura Ingalls put on, uh, Ingram put on the, uh, the woman who was talking in a way, I didn't even understand her. Her head was backwards, her face looked, couldn't see it. Oh, Laura said, that means that you watch people that weren't allowed to observe the battle. I think maybe what's going on is that Rudy has been playing tapes of his 9-11 press conferences backwards to see if there are any satanic messages. And that's what we're hearing. And in fact, there are satanic messages all around Rudy. They come from callers who constantly prank him, buttering him up with talk about him being a great leader and then saying, so why'd you marry your cousin? Really juvenile stuff. And Rudy is looking to elevate the conversation. I don't know why you watch that stupid junk on television where everybody gets on and says, I know the Washington Post, Washington Post says, So it might be hard from the precise clips that I've played, which are all from yesterday's show, to tell what Rudy's main theme is. I mean, I'm sure you've gleaned that. Whatever the theme is, it is presented with rigorous logic and clarity. But I will read the last three titles of his three most recent shows. And they are, The Election Was Stolen, There Was Fraud, We Will Prove It. It's kind of nice how that works in unison. Like sometimes there are books in a series and when you line them up on a shelf, their spines paint a picture. I like that. But what Rudy is doing on his show is injecting into the mainstream, or at least the blowtorch of freedom's acetylene leaked stream, the idea that, yes, the election was stolen. The title of yesterday's show, where all these clips come from. And Rudy has special content that you'll only get on his radio show because basically no one else in the entire media will air it. He read from a sworn affidavit from a woman in Michigan, Melissa Carone. Rudy says that even Sean Hannity passed on interviewing Carone, who was working for an IT company serving the computers in Antrim County, Michigan. I have this affidavit here. I have read it. It is not convincing. Carone says workers ran ballots through the machines several times, double counting, triple counting, quadruple counting. She offers no proof of this. She offers some additional charges that, no, 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 tend to undermine her credibility. She writes the adjudication process from my understanding. Again, she's an IT worker there for a day to fix the balloting machines. There's supposed to be a Republican and a Democrat judging these ballots. I overheard numerous workers talking during a shift change in which over 20 machines had two Democrats judging the ballots, resulting in an unfair process. And then she says, there was, this is her sworn affidavit, there was two vans that pulled into the garage of the counting room, one on day shift and one on night shift. These vans were apparently bringing food into the building because they only had enough food for not even a third of the workers. 
I never saw any food coming out of these vans. Coincidentally, it was announced on the news that Michigan had discovered over 100,000 more ballots, not even two hours after the last van left. And she alleges that she saw her boss, Nick, and another worker talking. She couldn't hear what they said, but concluded, quote, I asked Nick what was going on, and he told me it was all taken care of and not to worry about it. I fully believe that this was something very crucial that they just covered up. The county where this worker was servicing, I guess, the ballot machines is Antrim County, and they, in fact, did have an error that was caught before results became official. Donald Trump wound up winning that county by 2,500 votes. There are 17,000 total votes, or a little more than that, in Antrim County. The county has a total population of 23,000 votes. By the way, Donald Trump is currently behind Joe Biden by about 150,000 votes in Michigan. These are the stories that have been exposed everywhere else as just that, stories. But they've not been stopped from spreading on Twitter or apparently, as I stumbled across, on AM radio. And yet, even Hannity isn't interviewing so many of these particular witnesses. The stories of fraud, they, they're kind of a subgenre at this point. They're passed around. They become legends that work in a similar way as tales of seeing a miracle apparition in a storefront window, or the people who swear they've witnessed the statue of Our Lady of Guadalupe crying. They don't have any force of law, you can never prove it, but they do serve to separate the believers from the doubters. And once a community of faith is established, all manner of claim can be forwarded. So when Rudy opened the phones up, one guy was fixated on suspiciously good penmanship on some ballots. What's the chance of 150 people circling, using, all using a number two pencil, perfect, perfect, uh, they filled out, you know, they were in the bubble, perfectly, you know, sometimes you go beyond the bubble. And Rudy didn't have to stray far outside his bubble to find another conspiracy online, too. Well, if you were to type in Antifa.com a couple of weeks ago, it led you directly to the Biden-Harris campaign website. And do you know who orchestrated that? Mr. Soros. Yeah. WABC, just for the record, is owned by the Walt Disney Company. Good to see them profiting on all this nonsense. I don't know. You know what? Maybe I've been unfair. Maybe I don't understand Rudy. And maybe Rudy doesn't understand a member of the mainstream media such as myself. The international or national press looks at me like I'm some kind of a right-wing conspiracy theorist. Actually, Rudy does get it. But I got to say, he's not just a conspiracy theorist. Let's remember... He is also personal legal counsel to the man who is still the most powerful person on earth. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces The Gist. She looked up TonyBobolinski.com and it took her right to the website of Joe Jorgensen. Daniel Schrader, Gist producer, says, you know who arranged that? JFK Jr. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She just got a great idea. Why don't Republican operatives just hand out number three pencils outside Democratic polling stations? Brilliant. The gist. I don't look at the Jets as an 0-9 team. I look at them as a transition team that is being denied the necessary resources. Umpuru Depuru Dupuru, and thanks for listening.